0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome back to New Books and Indian Religions. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balcaran. More importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jared Whittaker, who is professor at Wake Forest University. We'll be speaking about a 2011 OUP publication that... Uh, is definitely still relevant, especially in the slow-burning time of the thousands of years uh, since now. And the topic of the book, with it, which is hymns of the Rigveda, um, the book is called "Strong Arms and Drinking Strength: Masculinity, Violence, and the Body in Ancient India." Uh, welcome to the podcast, Jared. Thank
0: you, Raj. And I just want to begin by echoing um, Laurie Patton's. Uh, praise of you. Uh, I listened to her interview yesterday. And really, I do truly think what you're doing is a, a, a really important uh, service to the field. And it, it, it um, keeps things relevant and allows us to hear what new scholars are doing. And um, secondly, I think I want to thank you for inviting a Vedic scholar to participate, because I don't think you've had a Vedic scholar on <laughs> and talked with a Vedic scholar. Uh,
1: uh, I don't think I have either come to think of it and of course there's no uh there's no criteria in terms of particular fields or methodology all it is is what's recently churned out um but in your particular subfield of hindu studies it really is slow burning work so this is a new yeah. book
0: yeah. for your yeah. subfield
1: this is, yeah, very no, new it book. is
0: it is true that that i mean vedic scholarship there's a, there's a lot of you know articles are the main way in which scholars are kind of producing work just because of how demanding the kind of philological and linguistic work is, and books are, are few and far between. So it's always very exciting when a book comes out, invaded scholarship, I think.
1: Great. I'm going to pick up that thread uh, to continue the interview, but let me just at least uh, acknowledge um Acknowledge your acknowledgement. So, thank you very much for that. Uh, I don't know how I got here, but uh, it's it's an interesting place to be. I definitely am passionate about public education and translating the the complex nuts and bolts in a way that's accessible to people. But um, <laughs> but more often than not, the public the public education in which I'm engaged is my own. I'm educated right. in public by my guests. <laughs> right.
0: No, I think it's important the podcast. What I think is really important is is just. You know, we, we we all get siloed into our conferences and our professional organizations, and there's not really a a public space in which we can communicate with each other, or listen to each other, or just keep up to date with what's going on in the field. And 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 I even find that you know it's hard to keep track of what's going on in broad Hindu studies, and so it's really nice. I think your podcasts give us a real opportunity to listen in on books and hear about what scholars are doing. So again,
1: I just, I just want to thank you for doing this. You're welcome. The check is in the mail now. As as to the as to the yes, this is not only Seva, I you know this I, you know I lose money to do this podcast by bribing my guests. But anyhow, um, to pick up that thread, it's an important one. Your project is in the subfield of maybe Vedic studies. Mm-hmm. It, it requires a view Vedic Sanskrit. You mentioned philology. Talk a little bit about the training required and really how you stumbled into this world.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I'm you know what I think. I'm not, I'm not quite sure how I ended up here. I'm not sure if anyone really has a plan to end up here. But I think it really was just a progression of doing my undergraduate and early graduate, my master's work at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand, where I, I you know, for various reasons, I, I fell in love with religious studies as a field, not for religious or spiritual reasons. I really came to it from kind of myth and ritual. I mean, I really fell in love with the kind of imagery and stories. Um, And then I was doing, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, Judaism as an undergraduate student. And even as an early master's student, I took year-long courses on Buddhism, on the Torah, on, uh, um, I think, Mahabharata, and I began to learn Sanskrit, and it became clear that, you know, one could move into Indic studies, ancient Indian studies with Sanskrit. And I wrote my master's thesis, which um, appear, is now published in two journals on the concept of Tejas and the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. And so I, you know, I mean, a lot of us in our mid-twenties, we, we kind of keep just taking the next step that's offered to us not quite knowing where we're going to end up 25 years later but i applied for phd programs in the states for various reasons you know i mean uh, 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 the phd in new zealand was probably not going to get me much work outside of new zealand and america the phd programs were obviously much stronger and much minimal resources and connections so I applied to the states, and I ended up at the University of Texas at Austin. And when I came to Austin, you know, I um, I think I think my trajectory was really coming in to study with Patrick Olivelle, and um, I knew in conversations that he was going to let me kind of do what I wanted, pursue the issues that I wanted to, which I think is an incredible, you know, uh, um. One of his many, many amazing qualities is, is that, you know, he can take these kind of diamonds in the rough and let us do what we want to do. And then, of course, Joel Brereton joined the faculty, I think, in 2000. And um, I, 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 I turned up in 1999. And I think that, that that's really what, what, what he put me into kind of Vedic studies or, or led me into Vedic studies, that I, I was right on this cusp of thinking, well, I wanted to continue with the problems of my master's thesis, focusing on, I'm sure we'll talk about this as well, what are called the us-stem nouns in Sanskrit. And I'd worked heavily on the noun tejas in the epics. And I thought maybe I wanted to move into the Puranas, wanted to look at the way in which these concepts developed in, you know, medieval India. Or to go backwards. And then when Joel Brereton turned up at UT Austin, it was kind of a no brainer, right? I mean, he was a world class Vedic scholar. And I went backwards and I went right back to the kind of beginning of Sanskrit in India. And the work really began uh, with my dissertation, really on the atharvaveda And for various reasons I've gone back to, I'm, I'm, I'm reworking on these issues at the moment. But I began. Looking at, it became very clear when beginning to read the Atharva Veda, I became fascinated with the amulet hymns in the Atharva Veda. They, um, because of not just, you know, the ritual and evocative nature of binding powers and substances on individuals with formula, stock formula that gets used in the Atharva Veda, and I began my first year of kind of PhD research, ABD, focusing on the amulets, which have these... these. And I, be, I was I was focusing on these astim nouns. So in terms of, you know, what I mean by astim nouns, we're all, we're all aware of these in Sanskrit. But, you know, words like ojas and sahas and shabas and varchas and vayas. And then other words like bala and indriya and ayus and virya and rimna. So all these kind of words that... I, I, I call power substance words, or words for kind of abstract qualities. And in the amulet hymns, you see stock phrases where the, the priest will say, I bind um, this amulet, this money on you, the, the whoever is the recipient, re- recipient. And there's stock phrases where a lot of these us stem nouns or um, power nouns Are placed in the dative case. And, you know, it might be for Ojas, for Bala, for Ayas, for life, for virya, for virility, manly power. And I was confident with that. I thought that could turn into a dissertation project. And after a year of working on the Atharva Veda, it became really apparent to me, almost, you know, strikingly apparent, that I really couldn't understand what was going on. Unless I understood the Rig Veda. I mean, I don't mean to imply that you have to read the Atharva Veda solely through the Rig Veda, but so much of Atar- what is going on in the Atharva Veda is drawing on the same kind of worldview, the same kind of ideologies as the Rig Veda.
1: Well, it's an important text. Well, it's an important text for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. But uh, to your point, um, uh, the analog Genesis is an important text for a variety of reasons. But but the launching, the setting up of an ethos of ideals of a worldview. Right. That's no. That's a very tall order, a pervasive right. one. So it's the genesis of a worldview from which, consciously or unconsciously, tradition will draw or emulate. Correct.
0: Yeah. And so that was, I moved back. And so of course the book really is in some sense, the the early part of the dissertation. I, I finished the dissertation but, and then went to Wake Forest, but much of the book was heavily rewritten. Much of my dissertation was heavily rewritten to turn it into the book. I mean, the dissertation was 550 pages long and wasn't very controlled, I don't think. And once I was obviously going through the tenure process, I really kind of did a 180 on my dissertation and basically rewrote the whole thing. But essentially what the book does, I think, is it, it, it became really apparent very quickly that what I was really dealing with were terms for masculinity and terms for male identity, and that these terms were embedded in a kind of androcentric, patriarchal, masculine ideology. And so I started to look in the Rig Veda at the way in which the poetic hymns are in some sense constructing and legitimizing this dominant form of masculinity, right? And the way in which the poet priests, the Kavi, are communicating these masculine ideals, martial kind of roles, identities, and relationships to to men, to men that are participating in the ritual, whether these ritual men participating are themselves poet-priests or whether they are men who are supposed to be martially inclined without reifying it, what we would call as warriors or chieftains. And so the book really focused on how these terms, uh, nri or nar for man and its abstract equivalent, nrimna, manhood, Vera, which I, I, for various reasons, I argue in the book, I'd prefer to translate as virile, brave man, true man, um, kind of has a sense of a kind of a tough guy. Um, rather, I mean, I argue in the book, I, I prefer this translation over something like hero, as the word Vera gets translated often. And then it's abstract equivalent, viria. Manly power, virility, masculinity and we, and we know from, you know, Indo-European cognates That vera and viria are related via Latin With English words like virility, virtuoso, virile, etc um, So then looking at other words uh, um, And then there's, a, there's an equivalent word also We have this word punxia Meaning something like manhood uh, Very closely related to nrna, manhood And then I began to focus on, um, while while looking at these power terms, I was focusing on this word shavas, which means power. And uh, it's intimately connected with another word, shura, which I prefer to translate here as champion or hero. And we can talk about the more in depth argument there. But what I, I knew going into this text Given what I'd done on the epics with Tejas, I knew that these words for power were, well, I, I suspected, and it became pretty apparent looking at these words using kind of philological and linguistic methods, that these words were far more specialized than we often give credit, right? We open up Monia, Monia Williams, or we open up Update. we look at the dictionary and it's power, 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 power. And given what I did with the Mahabharata, I knew, I suspected these words had a a. A, a, a specificity to them we were missing. And in looking at all these words across the Rig Veda, it became apparent that there is a real specificity. There is a closed sense of how many of these words work in terms of defining roles and ideals. And then, of course, finally in the book, I, I looked at the word ojas, another general word for power. And what's really apparent in the Rig Veda is the word ojas is, is intimately connected with drinking soma. And that soma and drinking soma and praise, stoma, hymns are some of the primary ritual ways in which men are instilled with ojas, with this kind of of liquid courage, if you will. And that's where the title of the book comes from, is, of course, the drinking strength. And the strong arms there is is Indra, because in some sense, Indra is the paradigm. He is the template, the kind of discursive object on which a lot of these ideals are placed. And I argue heavily in the book, the way in which then real men are supposed to understand themselves in the image of Indra. And so Indra becomes a kind of paradigmatic example of how you talk about masculinity, how you construct masculinity, and particularly in terms of violence and martial behavior, cattle raiding, maybe open war- warfare. And um, so Indra is, is in some sense the filter the, the um, uh, kind of the, the, the main way in which this discourse is transmitted.
1: Would you, would you perhaps see Indra as a personification of the ethos? E-
0: exactly. I mean, I think this is the way to think about it is, is, you know, one of the things I'm constantly saying to my students is we have to stop seeing, in some sense, gods or cosmic ideals uh, you mentioned, you know, uh, you know, ideals like karma or uh, um, gods like Indra. We have to stop seeing these as in some sense as objects of belief. We, we you know, these are, this is a kind of an anthropological move or just a critical humanities move that when we see these things as objects of belief, we get backed into an interpretive corner, right? Where we often have to judge the quality of somebody's belief based on our own. And because it's different to us, all too often, you know, humans will generally make this mistake of thinking that that belief is irrational or wrong or less than. And I think the way to get out of this interpretive corner is to see these um, concepts as subjects of discourse. So I, I think of Indra, or I think of Agni, I think of these gods as really complex ways of talking about your world. And... Um, Distilling, if you will, as you're suggesting, right? I mean, placing a lot of ideals and values into an anthropomorphized figure like Indra. And then, of course, as we know from good critical religious studies theory, humans will consistently project those ideals outside of themselves into, in some sense, the cosmos, the universe then reinterpret them back onto themselves. I mean, this is a very Peter Berger move, right? And the sacred canopy from the 1960s. And something that we see in cultural anthropology for the last 50 years is the way in which gods are ways of talking about the world, thinking through the world and justifying how to be in the world. And so I think that's what Indra is doing in the hymns of the Rig Veda. And I mean, I mean, you know, we can clearly see this in one of the examples that I talk about extensively in the book is that Indra does three cosmogonic or three cosmological acts that we see spread out through the hymns of the Rig Veda, right? I mean, we have a thousand twenty eight hymns in the Rig Veda, and the majority of those hymns are sung to Indra and Agni and Soma and the hymns of the Rig Veda dating to, say, 1200. Um, you know, we don't be going to go into depth about the, the problems and about dating the Rig Veda, but if we place this to 1200,000 BCE and it's in its kind of maybe final stages, the majority of these hymns are to Indra, Agni, the deified ritual fire, Soma, the sacred beverage that has been made in the ritual that is himself deified as a deity, as a, as a god. Um, th- these these hymns are um, being performed and indra is set up in some sense as the main figure because probably the ritual is being done in a in what we would call maybe a proto agni stoma a ritual done to Indra that we see in the middle Vedic period becomes very central. That's probably done at the new year. I lean towards a spring equinox, but you know there are arguments that it could be summer solstice. There are, there are suggestions even in the Rig Veda that it could be done in some sense at will. But the point here is that Indra is set up as, as somebody who kind of creates the universe. He's a creator god, right? He, he pulls apart father sky and mother earth and he puts between them pillars, mountains, to stabilize the universe. So he creates the universe, and so he becomes a creator god. And then of course, his martial characteristics are displayed in his battles with the cosmic serpent Vritra. And what's really clear about the word Vritra is the word Vritra. I mean, I mean uh, Vritra is a cosmic snake, a giant serpent, um, who wants to enclose the world, crush it down again, right? Shut it down and in its coils, wrap it up in its coils. And so Vritra defeats, uh, uh, sorry, Indra defeats Vritra in battle. But Vritra's name means literally obstacle coming from the root Vri, to, to, to ensnare, to constrict. And so he's the grand ensnarer, right? Closing in, and so Vritra, of course, Indra defeats Vritra to free the universe from this constriction. But what we can see clearly in the Rigveda to highlight this point about gods are in some sense a, object of, a subject of discourse, a way of talking about the world, is that we can see that human enemies and real world problems are coded and talked about as being Vritrani, as being their own obstacles that the migrating tribes have to overcome. And so you can see certainly in that example, the way in which martial engagement is justified if your god is defeating the cosmic serpent and you're coming across real world serpents, so to speak, real world constrictors and having to overcome them. And then, of course, the third myth that Indra deals with is the famous Vala myth, where he uh, um, frees cattle, sunlight, the dawn, the waters, by smashing open a cave that they're enclosed in, that he tracks down with his kind of cohort of poet-priests, the Angirises. And what's key there is the word Vala comes from the same root, Vri, to enclose. So there is this real tension in the Rig Veda between freedom, movement, open space, access to waterways, pastoral grazing grounds, and then that those things that would inhibit that, right? And so that's winter closes it down. You can't migrate. Uh, um, opponents that might try and, and take from you or stop you moving. Um, we even can see that that the words, the constraint refers to even things like, you know, um, uh, the kind of geography, if we think of the early Vedic tribes moving through the Hind Kush mountain pass, then they're dealing with being closed in and constricted. And then when they're coming into what would be northwest Pakistan today, uh, the Indus River Valley with the, the various tributaries, the Sapta Sindhavaha, the, uh, um, the Seven Rivers, you can see a lot of ways where we can infer of what these tribes and people may be doing. So that's the whole point there. I I belated the point here, but that we can see in Indra a way of talking about real-world concerns, real-world relationships and issues.
1: It certainly, to my mind, uh, mythological narratives have everything to do with meaning-making. Mm-hmm. Grappling with processing their, their operating systems, right? Right. Um, um, and so, I, 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 I draw on mythological narratives heavily in my teaching. And one of the things that I, one of the things I always see at the outset, depending on the crowd, is whether we believe that they're historically true or not. the The real the real power of the narrative. Right Making sense of reality or yourself or your right. etc. Um, right. who who would most be interested in this book? Who's this book for?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question because in some sense, you know I, 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 I have a sense of, of different layers, right We think in concentric layers. I mean, of course, When I'm writing this book, I'm just writing to kind of keep my job through the tenure process. And of course, I'm writing for a publisher and I'm writing for reviewers. And I want, you know, two reviewers at the publishing house to accept the book for publication so I can keep my job, as is the brutal nature of the tenure system. You're not Uh, supposed um,
1: to say that out loud. I'm not
0: supposed to say that out loud. Yeah, I think we have a real problem in academia, but then that's a whole other conversation.
1: I I haven't noticed.
0: are you a are you a, are you a victim of this it is a it's it's a it's a problem but anyway the point there is of course i'm i'm writing for myself i think of myself who i was as an undergrad reading academic work and and i want it to be exciting and accessible and i want it to be interesting and educational i think of myself as a master's student i often try and write i try and find a voice i suppose. Where I'm writing for a kind of committed master student who's really interested in this stuff um, or a PhD student and then in terms of the audience I'm writing for my mentors the people who help heavily with with the development of the book and reading the book and the conversational partners of Vedic scholars uh, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm writing to make sure I live up to those standards and expectations And then in terms of the larger audience, I suppose I'm writing for wider Vedic scholars and Indic scholars, Sanskritists, who are thinking about Indian history. Because, of course, much, you know, we we, we know that ideas from the Rig Veda get um, reinterpreted and transmitted and passed on through the, the Middle Vedic period into what we call, you know, the Classical period. We know that we can look at the epics and think about what's going on in relation to the Vedic period and the Medieval period. And then, of course, in terms of a larger audience, I think I'm writing for people who are interested in Indo-European studies, uh, masculinity studies, martial or violence, um, you know, studies on violence and uh, masculinity or, you know, what we might call today a kind of a toxic masculinity that's centered around violence and strong bodies and physical domination and then I suppose at the large level, I'm writing for people who are just simply interested in history and mythology um, and, you know, uh, warrior culture. So in terms of the audience, there's all these concentric circles. Whether or not I've hit any of those, I suppose the one I really only cared about was making sure I got tenure. So <laughs> the book did that for me.
1: Um, whichever it means is this will be enjoyable to a number of audience. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll I'll translate for you. I'll, um, I'll try, yeah. uh, um, oh. uh, what this thread that you identify that you that you posit or identify um, from Veda Kim's this Indra this mass this th- this thread of masculinity, where does it continue? In 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 Indian religions, what do we oh, that's, it? A, that's
0: actually a really great question because I've just I've actually just published an article on this issue that came out in um, twenty twenty um, in a uh, edited volume on um, uh, violence. There was a. a, a um, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I've got to try and think who it was. It was Rutledge, I think, put together. A, um, is putting together a multi-volume series on violence. I'm sorry, I'm Cambridge. I said Rutledge. Uh, that was a mistake. Sorry, Cambridge has put together a multi-violent, um, the Cambridge World History of Violence. And I've got an article that just came out in the first volume on the prehistoric and ancient worlds, published in 2020. And this um, article is called Heroism, Military Violence in the State in Ancient India. And in short, it focuses on the Mahabharata. And what, where this research came from, it's my first foray back into Mahabharata studies after 20 plus years of, of you know, not, not publishing on the Mahabharata, focusing on the Rig Veda and the Atharvaveda. And w- w- the, the short story of this article uh, um, is that, about seven years ago 2014 2013 2014 i was teaching a master's student sanskrit and we were reading we'd done you know he, he was second year or third year sanskrit he's advanced enough or second year second year sanskrit and we had done the usual stuff, and we had read through parts of the Ramayana, and we had done Landman and you know Nala and Damianti, and he wanted something a bit more in depth. And I said, well, why don't we? He was thinking of writing his his dissertation, uh, his master's degree thesis on the um, Mahabharata, so I said, well, why don't we do? Why don't we pick up the Mahabharata? And um, not quite sure where this came from. I may have I may have written to a colleague and asked for some suggestions. I mean, I could have picked some stuff out, but we ended up. Just grabbing a section of book 12 from the um, from the Shanti And I can't remember exactly how we picked it, but we jumped in and started reading Mahabharata 12, 93 to 107, which um, Jim Fitzgerald kind of has as a subcategory called Law, Force, and War within the kind of larger. Uh, uh, larger sections of the Shadipavad. and I didn't think much of this I knew that it was going to have a lot of stuff about warfare, it was going to have a lot of stuff about um, how one builds the army and ideas of you know, kshatriya dharma and stuff that I'd written on in the past And so I didn't think much about it, well I've got to say this, I was dumbstruck because these, these nine chapters now That's
1: the Mahabharata for
0: you Yes These nine chapters, in some sense, explicitly lay out what I was trying to argue was implicitly going on a thousand years earlier in the Rig Veda. I was reading these chapters going, what the? This is exactly what I was arguing they were doing a thousand years earlier. And the Mahabharata is explicit about it because, of course, it's in the Rajadharma Parvan where it's laying it out for kings to train them how you socialize young men to go to war. And what's really key here is there's an enormous amount of strategies in the Mahabharata about how you convince, in some, in some sense, young men to die in battle for the king. And a lot of these strategies center around amplifying the role of the heroic warrior, and I will return to that in a second, um, Really driving home the problems with somebody who is a coward. Here the word is viru, somebody who's fearful, and the punishments for that, going to hell. Even, even it looks like you know, corporal punishment, killing. Um, there, there's statements in the in the Mahabharata the, in the section that point out that you execute cowards, you burn them alive. Um, you know, and then it has all the stuff to do with the body which I argue, I talk an enormous amount about the way the body becomes a site of encoding meaning in the Rig Veda. And I'm doing all this theoretical work to kind of like draw out the way the body is being used to construct gender in the Rig Veda. And the Mahabharata is really explicit about it. It talks about scars and the way warriors scars are are badges, are emblems of pride and prestige and that a warrior shouldn't die in bed. He shouldn't, uh, um, you know. And then, of course, the last thing you have in this section, of course, is, is, uh, you know, the ritual of battle that we know from Alf Huttabar's work, but that the, 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 the ritual itself, the battle itself becomes a ritual that is even better than Vedic ritual, that is even better than in some sense having to pay priests to do rituals for you. You can die in battle and go to heaven. So I'm reading this and I'm really gobsmacked. I'm like, what the, why didn't I just start with this 20 years ago. Listen, the when they
1: say when they say everything's in the Mahabharata they're not kidding. <laughs>
0: no. And, and so the point about this you asked about the ideals that transmit well actually really concretely from a very I mean really core linguistic perspective what's really key in these the section of the Mahabharata Mahabharata um 1293 to 107 and particularly I focus on in this article Mahabharata um 98 to 103 1298 to 103 is the enormous amount of detail placed on the figure of the Shura, the Shura. And the Shura here is clearly, clearly the heroic champion, is clearly the key singular kind of hero who fights alone at the head of battle. And he becomes an exemplar for the other soldiers. And we have to remember, too, the text is clear, soldiers here aren't Kshatriyas. They're, they're drawn from a lot of ranks of different people. And so you have to socialize them. You know, you have, to, you have to teach them to go into battle by kind of training them to overcome their fear. And one of the ways, of course, is the exemplary example of the shura. And what's really key is that in this section, the shura is the paradigmatic hero. And again, I argue in this um, article that we've got to stop translating the word vira as hero. It, it's, it's, it, it means like a virile man. It means a true man. It means like a tough guy. But it is not hero if we want to be very theoretical and technical about defining what we mean by the word hero as a kind of exemplary single figure going to in battle alone. And, and so the point about this is that if we go back a thousand years to what I'm arguing in my book in the third chapter, this is exactly what I argue is going on in the Rig Veda, that the word shura, coupled with the abstract noun shavas, meaning might or power, is the paradigmatic hero. So in the Rig Veda, Indra is never called a Vera when he fights Vritra, never. He is always called a Shura. And he, in many of the scenes in which he deploys his power with his mace, his Vajra, he does it shavasa with his shavas. And what's really key here is the word shavas and shura both come from the root shu, meaning to swell? Right, it's where we get words like um, it's where we get words like shava from that you see in yoga, right, a uh, shavasana, the corpse pose, right, a bloated figure. But in this case, the shura and shavas is is the the I mean, literally shura in the Rigveda means big, strong man, a swollen figure, and if, the Shavas is his swelling might, his expanding strength. And what's key is it's not just a kind of, uh, a kind of figure etymological where the poets are playing on the root shu. It matches thematically because the shura is taking on vritra. And indra as the shura is taking on vritra. And vritra means to constrict to constrain, to close down. So, of course, the poet's ideologically very clever. He uses his shavas, his swelling strength, his swelling might, to push Vritra apart, to reopen the universe with his strength. And so here we can see the way, theoretically, the body becomes a locus of meaning that the Shura is the hero, the champion, and his Shavas, his swelling strength in the Rig Veda drives apart the constricting force of Vritra, the cosmic serpent. And a thousand years later, give or take, if you, you know, give or take a few hundred years, depending on how we want to date the Rig Veda and the Mahabharata, we can clearly see in, in, the, Maha, in the Mahabharata, the ideas of swelling strength have disappeared, but the Shura is still being talked about in the uh, Rajadharma Parvan is still being talked about as as the emblematic heroic figure. And I think this really helps us understand the way in which ideas of heroism, which I think have been poorly defined in Vedic and Indic scholarship. We really, you know, there, there's some work done on it in the medieval period where we have scholars pointing out that, that the word shura plays a, uh, um, shura, shura play a very strong role. And I think we, we have to understand then the way to define heroism, what we mean by heroism and we can see some consistency and coherency from the Rig Veda into the Mahabharata period. So that's one way to think about these ideals are transmitted. And then another way broadly in this article I've written um, is also to look at ideas of masculinity and the body and ritual. So this article, Heroism, Military Violence in the State in Ancient India, I'm just plugging myself, came out in 2020 because it'll be in an obscure publication no one will ever find really focuses again on gender, on masculinity, and the body, the way the body becomes the site of masculine power and identity. And so the problem here is, of course, and this is, of course, we can appreciate this today with certain types types of hyper-masculinity, violent masculinity, that in some sense the body of a man becomes his primary form of social capital. But as I argue in the book, and I argue in this article in the Rigveda and the Mahabharata, that comes with a high price, right? Because the way you have to display that privilege, that power, that social standing can ultimately cost you physically. And also, we have to recognize mentally, right? It
1: can cost you mentally. There's um, so many fascinating threads there. Um, I'm glad you pointed to the Mahabharata. It's something that I'm currently doing a little bit of work on. And in particular, um, one of my Mahabharata projects is um, uh, for the International Committee of the Red Cross um, on International Humanitarian Law in the Mahabharata. And so fascinating, uh, fascinating synergy. And I'd like to speak to you at some point um regarding exactly what you say but uh oh you too you just just (laughs) I
0: I saw that on your bio and yes I've been communicating with him as well I think it's a really worthwhile project I don't know how much we can talk about it but I think you're right I think there's a worthwhile project with the International Society of the Red Cross thinking about
1: we have to speak after this this
0: we do we do
1: (laughs) for the private podcast we record it for select audiences no um um, fascinating about the Mahabharata. I love that there's this thread in tradition, and, and of course, the, the Mahabharata is very self-consciously rehearsing and rearticulating and dealing with various often competing values. So it's, it's unsurprising yeah. that this thread gets refined. Um, and what I I can't get beyond this idea of the dharma double helix of this like right. this, these two strands, because right. you've got this, you know, quote unquote. Uh, masculine virile um warrior ethos that's obviously necessary the mob art is a great uh, martial um, right. <laughs> thing um but then <laughs> epic, it's uh, epic 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 it's an <laughs> yeah, epic exactly epic. <laughs> but then you've got it juxtaposed and 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 sort of um you've got it um stewing in this Antithetical ethos, where right, Uddheshthira's character, right? I mean, right.
0: We we see, you know, I mean, of course, uh, other scholars have written on this this tension that we see with with Yudhishthira and and this tension we see, of course, then with with Bima and Arjuna, where where Bima seems to have no no restraint about violence right you know the wolf belly just wants to destroy and he's smash i I don't mean to belittle Beamer, but he's kind of the the hulk he just wants to go smash and i'm a fascinating character i i think beamer is a really fascinating character we have arjuna who in some sense is 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 absolutely committed to violence doesn't seem to have any restraints, except this one major episode we all love, we all know of, right? This one major episode called the Bhagavad Gita, where this guy goes, oh, hang on a moment, uh, um, I have some problems. And then we have figure of Yudhishthira, which, you know, I, I, other scholars have written on this tension with Yudhishthira, where he's really struggling with this throughout the epic, right? He's struggling with how to be honorable and not kill, how to be peaceful, how to be, in some sense, diplomatic, and then how to deal with his guilt from, you know, sanctioning this kind of genocidal massacre, this apocalyptic war. And his identity as a warrior. I mean, he does fight in battle, He, you know? And so, yeah, you're right. I mean, and there is this tension in the Mahabharata that is, is, as we know, is with a lot of the rules to do with fighting, uh the tension between Raja Dharma and kshatriya dharma where of course the rules of kshatriya dharma are explicitly laid out at the beginning of the bhishma pavan they all agree on what they're not going to do in battle and then it is of course as we all know it is the pandavas who explicitly break all these rules and it is krishna who seems to be the driving hand telling them to break these rules and then we know that this is in some sense in tension with the idea of Raja Dharma, not to be too Machiavellian or too Caltillian, in which, in some sense, political power is the end game. And so, political power, we know with Apa Dharma, allows you to, to bend the rules, to stretch the rules, to push the rules. And so, these are these beautiful tensions in the epic between, in some sense, you know shanti and peace and asceticism and moksha and living in the world and feeding enemies and then having to follow a code of honor or pushing those boundaries with the code of honor
1: fascinating fascinating stuff uh, we're close to time for today was there anything else about the publication that you wanted to touch on
0: um uh, well first of all i mean again thank you for drawing attention to it i you know it it you know i think vedic scholars we we operate within a kind of closed world and there's a lot of amazing stuff and a lot of enormous amount of work gets done in Vedic scholarship and it's slow work, it's difficult work, the demands of, of the linguistic demands, the philological demands. I mean, the older I get, I'm going to turn 50 in March. And it doesn't get easier. It seems to be getting harder to do this work because, of course, you 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 just know more, and you're more careful, and you cross your eyes and dot your t's or whatever the Sanskrit equivalent of that is. And it, it 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 slows down. So so it's really nice, I think, to have attention drawn to this book and I think attention to drawn to Vedic scholarship. There's a lot of really good scholars younger scholars I suppose I can say that now within Vedic scholarship who are doing a lot of really good important work and so it's nice to speak to my colleagues broadly and draw attention to my book but I think draw attention to the work that's being done by Vedic scholars and um, no I mean I don't have anything uh, uh, specific to say about the book I'm just I'm glad to revisit it and I'm working on a new project at the moment that is again, on the Rig Veda and the Atarva Veda. And you, you probably, if I can get this thing out in the next year or two, you'll see similar ideas of the way in which the poetic tradition is creating certain ideologies and um, trying to keep it complex, trying to make humans real and make them involved in contested realities that they're having to overcome and negotiate. So um yeah, I think, I think the book laid the foundation for my last 10 years of scholarship and will kind of lay the foundation for maybe the next 10 years.
1: Well, you're most welcome to return on the podcast when next you uh, publish a book. Thanks, Raj. Um All right, so thank you for appearing today.
0: Thank you too. I really enjoyed myself. And thanks. It's, uh, it's great to meet you in person.
1: It's, yeah, well, it's great to meet you as well. And we'll continue chatting. Apparently, there are many threads to be followed <laughs> up upon. Um, yeah. For those of you listening, uh, we've been speaking with Dr. Jared Whitaker, who is a professor uh, at Wake Forest University. We've been speaking about this brand new in Vedic terms book from 2011. How <laughs> Listen. Hot off the Veda, 50, 3,500 years ago, these hymns-ish. I mean. Come on, a decade's nothing. Uh, It's called Strong Arms and Drinking Strength, Masculinity, Violence in the Body in Ancient India, OUP 2011. Until next time, keep listening, uh, stay safe, stay sane, and keep contemplating um, ancient Vedic hymns to Indra. Take care.